Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, another state has posted some interesting financials regarding health insurance rates on their insurance exchanges set up to provide coverage options under the Affordable Care Act. And while it may be too soon to call it a trend, it's promising news. That's right, Mark. The state of New York, which is setting up its own insurance exchange, has listed the rates for the 17 insurance providers who are participating in the exchange. And the rates are on average 50% lower than present rates on the individual market. The governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, issued a statement that folks currently paying $1,000 a month for health insurance coverage could pay as little as $300 for coverage on the exchange. That's really quite remarkable. That is great news. And of course, we saw the same story in California, which already has listed rates for its insurance exchanges. So both coasts have good news. It looks like market forces are doing what they expected, applying downward pressure on the cost of insurance. And that's certainly a positive. Yes, it is. But something that's not so positive, according to a recent survey of the nation's doctors, show they're largely clueless about how the health care law is going to work. Well, the survey showed also some real skepticism about how the law will be implemented. Only 11% felt that the insurance exchanges would be ready for customers by the October 1st deadline. And an amazing 65% still had no idea how those being insured through the exchanges would impact their own practice. And this poll shows there hasn't been an effective enough information campaign to inform those on the provider side. But I see that the president is out on the hustings around the country talking about the Affordable Care Act. Well, you know, Mark, it's not so surprising. People who deliver health care are pretty busy delivering health care. They may not have been able to master all that information for themselves or their patients, and we hope there's a really effective communication strategy that will continue to unveil over the couple of months. We know the states and federal government are spending a lot more time doing that in the coming months and a lot to wrap your arms around. There certainly is. Speaking of brain power, Margaret, that's something our guest today knows quite a lot about. Dr. William Newsom is co-chair of President Obama's 21st Century Brain Initiative, whose goal is to ultimately map the human brain. A deeply complex task that some say could take years, even decades, but will revolutionize our approach to all disorders of the brain. So pretty exciting work. That it is. Lori Robertson from factcheck.org checks in with another uncovered mistruth about health reform. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love to hear from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Dr. William Newsom in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. Detroit's money woes and healthcare since the bankruptcy filing of the Motor City retirees living on a city pension, including health insurance coverage, are bracing for a hit. Officials handling the city's $18 billion budget shortfall are considering pension cutbacks. The question is how much? The pension shortfall accounts for $3.5 billion of the $18 billion shortage. Many retirees faced with the prospect are thinking they'll have to find a job to offset those losses. Detroit's emergency city manager is calling for significant cuts. 
Significant cuts in insurance rates have been revealed in New York State, which unveiled some of the pricing for the insurance exchanges being set up in the Empire State. Governor Andrew Cuomo announcing rates for those seeking coverage on the exchange in New York will average about 50 percent less than rates on the open individual market. But analysts warn that dramatic drop may not be repeated elsewhere like it has in California and New York. And one state's coverage vacuum has created a business opportunity. Humana is going to cover those parts of Mississippi left uncovered in that southern state. Mississippi is neither setting up an exchange or expanding Medicaid to include more coverage for those living close to the poverty line, leaving tens of thousands of residents without any other option, thus having them remain uninsured. Humana says it will sell subsidized coverage to the 36 counties that would have been left out of the game. And 3D printing and the old-fashioned cast. Break an arm or a leg and plaster cast six to eight weeks. It becomes increasingly itchy, cumbersome, stinky, uncomfortable. Enter the Cortex, a 3D-printed custom cast. Seems simple enough. A person shows up at the ER with a broken bone. The doctor assesses the damage with an X-ray and then makes a 3D scan of the limb. With a 3D printer, the doc prints out a made-to-order cast called the Cortex, snaps it into place, and voila, off they go. Patient gets a superhero exoskeleton. It's sleek, breathable, durable, and perhaps best of all, shower ready. Although admittedly harder to sign. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. William Newsom, professor of neurobiology at Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Newsom was just appointed as director of the newly created Interdisciplinary Neurosciences Institute at Stanford University, as well as being named co-director of President Obama's 21st Century Brain Initiative, which seeks to develop a framework to coalesce scientific efforts in the quest to map the human brain. Dr. Newsom is also an investigator at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. He's the winner of numerous prestigious awards, including the Distinguished Scientific Contribution Award from the American Psychological Society and is an elected member of the National Academy of Science. Dr. Newsom, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm pleased to be here with you, Mark. Dr. Newsom, uh, congratulations on your selection uh, by President Obama to be a co-director of his $100 million 21st Century Brain Initiative, which is seeking multidisciplinary solutions to unraveling the mystery of the brain. Uh, the project's been likened uh, in scope to the mapping of the human genome. We're uh, fortunate to have Dr. Francis Collins in really describing that initiative. Uh, but currently, the nation spends about $5 billion a year on all kinds of brain research. So I've got to assume that this $100 million is going to have a synergistic effect. Tell us a little more about what sort of discoveries and payoffs uh, you're hoping this project will yield. We're at a really unique time in the history of neuroscience. Those of us who've been in the field for a few decades really sense that the rate of change is has been accelerating enormously in the last five years, and we are it's only the beginning of this acceleration. And the real uh, difference maker here is the invention of new technologies that fundamentally allow neuroscientists to ask questions that we have only been able to wonder about and reflect about in the past, but now we can really ask them experimentally. And very new things are happening. 
happening. There is change afoot, and it's making many of us who are experimentalists have to rethink what it means to be an experimental neuroscientist and what questions we should be asking. And I think that uh, what we're shooting for here is really nothing less than a revolutionary kind of understanding about how, how all of this electrical activity in our brains makes possible the mental lives that we all have, our thoughts, our aspirations, our goals, our memories, our ability to learn. Uh, we really want to understand the biological mechanisms that make these things possible. And these new fundamental technologies are going to be a quantum leap along the way here. And our charge from President Obama is really to uh, try to understand the brain at this very basic level. I'm sure that these are going to have positive outcomes for our understanding of disease as well. Dr. Newsom, you've been, I think, quoted as saying that the complete mapping of the human brain won't take years like the Human Genome Project did. And I, of course, uh, was prepared for you to then say it will only take a year or two. And instead, I think you've said it's, it might take decades, which is why the president referred to this as a 21st century initiative. Now, I think you've also referred to the, the brain as a three-pound mass of goo between the ears. Yes, uh, yes, but at the, exactly. But at the same time, as the most complex known entity in the universe. So let's talk about the complexity. I what are the challenges? Why is it so hard? Why is it going to take decades, do you think? Yeah, well, you said the key word, Margaret. The key word there is complexity. So this three pounds of goo inside our head, and I refer to it as goo because that literally is its consistency. If you, neurosurgeons know that, you know, it's about the consistency of jello or toothpaste. But inside that three pounds, as you say, is the most complex entity in the universe that we know about. So in each one of our heads, that three pounds contains 100 billion neurons. Okay, so these are nerve cells that communicate with each other electrically, and it's that electrical communication and that circuit activity that somehow underlies our mental lives. So you have 100 billion nerve cells, and then each of those nerve cells is making 1,000 synaptic connections, little chemical connections with other cells. And these synaptic connections are sort of the points of information transfer. And so you've got 100 billion neurons, each with 1,000 synaptic connections. That means you have 100 trillion of these synaptic connections. And just to map that kind of complexly interconnected network is incredibly daunting. And we've done calculations that say in a human brain, you know, if we really map these connections carefully and thoroughly, we would fill up uh, many petabytes worth of disks with uh, information just for one brain. And we don't know how to even handle data sets that large yet. Okay? This is right out at the hairy edge of what computer science is able to handle at this point. So our ability to actually get the information out, what is that anatomically mapped network, and what is the electrical activity in each one of those cells is daunting. And then if you could imagine techniques that allow you to do that, just the massive amount of data and how we would handle it and how we would analyze it and how we would mine it is itself daunting. So I think, you know, when you when you look at those three things chained together, uh, you can start seeing why we say this is not something that's going to be done in a year or two years or even 10 years, but this really is a grand challenge for the 21st century. You know, uh, Dr. Newsom, you say this is a, is a spectacularly good time to embark on the quest of mapping the human brain, and because of the recent technological breakthroughs, I'm wondering if some of those technology breakthroughs are in the sort of big data capabilities that we have, because the, is the technology on the 
mapping capability or is also the technology on the neuroscience side? The technology is on all of these fronts. I mean, that's one reason I say it's a spectacularly appropriate time for this. I mean, the, the Obama administration, they got this one right, okay? This really is mm-hmm. the right time. It's the right topic at the right time. And the technologies really do create the potential for a revolution over the next couple of decades. I kind of liken this to trying to understand traffic patterns around New York City and information flow around New York City. So we could take out a road map and we could look and we could see all the connections of the roads and exactly where each road runs. Now, we need that in the, in the human brain and, and in animal brains. And that's sort of what I call neuroanatomy, just knowing where the cells are, where they make their synaptic connections to other cells so that you have this static roadmap. But that roadmap, if you look at it of New York area, it doesn't tell you what traffic is flowing on each road at any moment of the day, right? That's a dynamic property. That is information flow within that network of roads. And it's the same way in the brain. Just knowing the map doesn't tell you uh, what sorts of information is flowing in different circuits at different times. So there's no one answer to the this question about activity and dynamic activity. It depends on what you're doing. So we need the new technologies, but we also are developing new technologies, unprecedented new technologies, to get that dynamic activity, to measure the traffic on the roads, to measure the traffic in the neurons. And then you need to develop, if you have all of these, this information, you need to develop a theory, right, about how the thing's working. And so now we have statisticians and physicists and mathematicians coming in to help us develop theories about these new data sets that we're acquiring. And once you develop a theory, you really want to be able to perturb the system. You know, you say, aha, I have a theory about how this thing works now. I want to go in and I want to change the traffic on this one road and see if I can predict the changes that will happen on other roads. And we're developing new technologies for perturbing the activity in the nervous system. So on all of these fronts, we have really new technologies that are enabling us to do these things that we've never been able to do before. Well, Dr. Newsom, I'm struck in your comments how clearly the importance of the interdisciplinary team comes forward. This does not appear to be an area where siloed research is going to get you very far. And you, You've got now an interdisciplinary neuroscience institute that you are directing at Stanford, which is going to help provide a framework for the National Brain Initiative. Tell us what the, the new research paradigm looks like and, and tell us specifically about the institute. Well, the institute here at Stanford is a new attempt to integrate brain research across the entire campus. And we have a lot of traditional neuroscience research here in the School of Medicine at Stanford and in the Department of Biology and to some extent in the Department of Psychology. But we all realize, and we're fortunate that our president and provost here at Stanford realize that the brain is no longer just a problem in biology. I mean, it may never have been. We were just too clueless to know it in the old days. But today we realize, you know, that these new technologies that are transforming our understanding are coming from all different directions. So the latest technologies that give us the best mapping, this new clarity technique, Mm -hmm. that is fundamentally coming from chemists. It's coming from chemical treatments of the brain that render an animal brain, for example, transparent so that we can look all the way through it and trace these uh, fiber pathways all the way through it uh, without having to cut the brain up into little pieces and analyze the pieces individually. So chemistry is playing a big part. In terms of the the large-scale activity recording, 
optics and physics are playing a large part. We're actually now monitoring the activity of tens of thousands of neurons at a time uh, through optical means and new microscopes that have been invented by physicists and engineers. Perturbation, uh, our ability to perturb results from uh, genetic manipulation of certain cells and putting in sensors in the certain cells that allow us to shine light on those cells and create excitation or inhibition in those cells. And that technique was just invented seven or eight years ago here at Stanford. It's called optogenetic. But that's coming from genetics and molecular biology. And when we get these reams of data, we have to involve the engineers, the electrical engineers, uh, help us make better electrical measurements. And then the electrical engineers and the computer scientists are teaching us about algorithms and about how to think. So we are trying to raise philanthropic funds and create pools of money that will incent our faculty to get out of these disciplinary silos, as you say. We want to create a new culture of brain science, whereby electrical engineers and molecular biologists and traditional neuroscientists are working together in an iterative loop so that ideas flow from the theorists into the experimental labs, they get tested in the experimental labs, the results go back to the theorists, and the experimentalists say, hey, you guys were wrong about this, what's the deal? And have these iterative loops going back and forth between the physical scientists and the engineers and the experimental neuroscientists. And we need, you know, we need to prime that pump. So no matter how interested they are, if there's not some money to fuel the process, it's not going mm -hmm. to go forward. And that incidentally plays right into the national Obama Brain Initiative, right? This is, this is the kind of thing that the Brain Initiative should do nationally. We're speaking today with Dr. William Newsom, professor of neurobiology at Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Newsom was just appointed as director of the Interdisciplinary Neurosciences Institute at Stanford and also named co-director of President Obama's Brain Initiative, which seeks to develop a framework to coalesce scientific efforts in the quest to map the human brain, considered the last frontier of modern science. Uh, Dr. Newsom, I'd like to talk about the president's Brain Initiative. You talked earlier about pulling together the best and the brightest. And your co-director in this project is Dr. Corey Bargman, a noted neuroscientist from Rockefeller University. And the president referred to the two of you as a dream team. And as you've said, it's a daunting, even monumental task. So tell us, if you would, how your team is planning to undertake the challenges and where are you in the process at this moment? So Corey and I are chairs of a committee, a planning committee for the NIH. It's our task to sort of survey where the field is now, where the big opportunities lie, where the new technologies are creating opportunities that absolutely have to be exploited, and make recommendations to the U.S. government agencies about how to exploit this and where to go. We have a great committee of 12 people in addition to ourselves, representing all areas of neuroscience, and this is what Collins referred to as the dream team. It's an outstanding team. So one of the main things that we've done is realize we don't have all the answers on our committee, and we are opening this up to an outside process. So we're holding a series of workshops over the summer where we're inviting a dozen or so experts in each of four individual fields in to talk with us. So these experts give us talks about where they think their part of the field is and where it should go, and then we have two or three hours for afternoon discussion where we really sort of get into it and debate it. What are the merits of this approach? 
approach versus the other approach. So we're getting this input from a large community. We've also got uh, blog sites set up where we can get information from individuals. Later during the coming year, we'll be getting in input from potential foundation and company partners, private company partners. That's one part of our charge. So we'll be looking carefully at that. We'll be hearing from patient advocate groups because I think that's a very important perspective to get, you know, to re really hold our feet to the fire about, about disease. And, you know, for a lot of patients and a lot of your listeners on this radio station, this is not abstract. This is not fun and games. This is really this is real life. I was kind of skeptical about this, and but I was inspired by Corey to actually be a part of this. Corey finally said, she just said, look, if this is worth President Obama's time and, and he thinks it's worth his time to push this thing, then we simply have an obligation to go along and produce the very best plan that we can do. I said, Corey, you're right. We've mm -hmm. got to do this thing together. So uh, she's about the best co-chair I can imagine working with, but we have a fantastic committee, and, and I can assure you we're all working very hard this summer uh, toward our preliminary report that's due in September. As you've spoken, it sounds like the, the charge is really more at the 100,000-foot uh, the level, if you will, of understanding what's normal before one dives into what doesn't work and what's not normal. Is that is that safe to say? Uh, that is our charge, and, and our charge is more specific than that, actually. I mean, one misconception out there is that somehow we're doing some master plan for all of neuroscience, and that is not true. Our charge specifically talks about the dynamics of brain activity, all this sort of firestorm of electrical activity that's going on in mm. your brain right now and going on in Mark's brain and going on in my brain and those of all your listeners. I mean, there are these millions of neurons firing off these millions of action potentials. And our charge is really to understand how the dynamics emerging out of that densely connected network gives rise to that mental life. Okay, that's, that's what the NIH charge, and that's publicly available on the NIH website. Now, of course, much psychiatric disease is related to experience, right? That's the way we feel mm -hmm. it. That's why people come into the clinic, because they have altered experiences, whether we're talking about depression or whether we're talking about schizophrenia or people have altered experience. And we need to understand how the nervous system gives rise to experience in the first place and then how disorders in the nervous system give rise to these disorders of experience. Now, my gut feeling is that the answers to some uh, neurologic diseases that we all care about, my gut feeling is that the answers to those diseases are going to come at the molecular and cellular level. And it may be that the global brain activity is not highly relevant to Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. I don't know. But there are other diseases like the autism spectrum disorders mm -hmm. and like schizophrenia that are probably, my hunch is, they're going to come down to disorders and connections between the neurons, right? So I think that the brain activity map that we're sort of, you know, honing in on here, this dynamical activity will be highly relevant to some of the diseases and might be less relevant to others. But we're not going to know and we're not going to really be able to make that call until we start making progress on this with the new tools at our disposal. For much psychiatric and neurological disease right now, we are just stumbling around in the dark. And my father died about 10 years ago of Alzheimer's. And mm. I know we are largely stumbling around in mm -hmm. the dark. And Corey says, our job, the job of this brain initiative is to turn on some lights. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, when we start turning on lights, some of this darkness hopefully will be dispelled. Well, and there are a number of people who are trying to do that. We've had uh, 
Representative Patrick Kennedy on, and Patrick's uh, certainly working with his uh, group on the One Mind uh, for Research. We can love to hear your thoughts on those on those collaborations. As sort of as a side, more of a geeky question, but there's a lot happening with uh, uh, 3D imaging of the brain, and I also know that the 3D printing is really taking some gigantic steps forward. Uh, do you see at a time where uh, this is going to play a role in terms of trying to print out elements of the brain that you've been able to map through uh, imaging? Yeah, well, I I think that's an incredibly fascinating area. And there are these pockets of really bright people out there who are laying down, you know, they're taking neurons, nerve cells that are grown in tissue culture, and they're trying to assemble them into actual functional circuits uh, inside of, you know, petri dishes and artificial situations. So using particular molecules to guide the axons to hook up with other cells and creating little neural circuits. Uh, So this is the kind of thing, it's kind of like printing um, a a printed circuit board, except we're actually using live cells and trying to get them hooked up in ways that might do elementary computations. And that, you know, the long-term implications of that research is that is to be able to recreate circuits inside natural brains. So when some group of cells does Mm -hmm. decide to up and die, maybe it's not enough just to put stem cells into that place. Maybe those stem cells actually have to have instructions, molecular and chemical instructions about how to wire up together. And if we can understand what those molecular and chemical instructions are in this sort of printing kind of thing in the lab, then that will obviously help us create those structures and networks inside the brain. So I think, you know, when you think about that kind of research 10 or 20 years down the road, it's, it's about getting cells ultimately into real brains and helping them hook up with their proper partners to actually recreate circuits. It's not enough just to throw cells into the brain. It would be like, you know, your computer is broken. And if the repairman came out and just took the top off your computer and he took a bunch of transistors and just sprinkled them in there randomly and closed the computer and say, well, let's see if that fixes the problem. You'd, you'd think he was an idiot, right? <laughs> so um, it's kind of like that. We can't just take a diseased brain and sprinkle cells in there randomly and say, let's see if it fixes itself. We actually have to know how to get those cells integrated into the circuitry in a way that will make the thing work. So that's, that's the long-term goal of that kind of research. And I think it's a, it's a very promising one. We've been speaking today with Dr. William Newsom, professor of neurobiology at the Stanford University School of Medicine and co-director of President Obama's 21st Century Brain Initiative, which seeks to coalesce scientific efforts in the quest to map the human brain. You can learn more about Dr. Newsom's groundbreaking work by going to monkeybiz.stanford.edu. Dr. Newsom, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. You're welcome, Margaret and Mark. Nice to talk with you. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, President Barack Obama recently spoke in glowing terms of how Americans could save money on premiums thanks to the Affordable Care Act. But he left out several details in praising the law. Obama said that 8.5 million rebates are being sent out to consumers, averaging about $100 each. 
He's referring to a requirement in the law that insurance companies spend at least 80% of premiums on health costs, as opposed to things like marketing, profits, or overhead. If insurers don't meet that 80% mark, they have to refund part of the premiums. This is the second year for such refunds. But 8.5 million Americans aren't going to receive rebate checks of $100 this summer. For one thing, the administration says the plan benefits 8.5 million Americans, but the $100 figure is per family, not per individual. All told, $500 million is being sent out. Also, not everyone gets a check. Americans who buy their own insurance will, and 2.7 million of consumers who will benefit from this aspect of the law do buy their own insurance. But the rest are on employer plans, and the rebates for these plans go to the employer. If employers pay part of the premium, they are entitled to part of the rebate. And any benefit for workers would have to be passed along through the employer. It's not exactly the same as receiving a check in the mail. Obama is right to say that this is a clear benefit of the law. Consumers will get rebates, and insurance companies are limited in how much premium dollars they can use for non-health-related costs. But the president doesn't quite tell the whole story. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, Email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Of the roughly 2.3 million American soldiers who've returned from multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, as many as 20% have returned with so-called invisible wounds, post-traumatic stress disorder, traumatic brain injury, anxiety, depression, and stress. While the federal government has been shining a spotlight on the problem, there simply aren't enough soldiers getting the treatment they need, and their families and loved ones suffer alongside them. Dr. Barbara Van Dahlen is a licensed clinical psychologist who saw the need growing and decided to do something about it. In 2005, she and a handful of colleagues launched an organization dedicated to creating a network of volunteer counselors and therapists who would devote their time to treating soldiers and their family members. It's called Give an Hour. Uh, We are a national network of mental health professionals who provide free mental health services to our returning troops their families, and their communities. And her organization has grown. She has created a network of 6,500 licensed therapists in all 50 states, the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, and Guam, and they have provided thousands of hours of free therapy to all veterans who reach out to them. And they're also working with the federal government's initiative to train the next generation of doctors and mental health professionals to recognize the unique characteristics of PTSD and related conditions. Dr. Van Dalen is planning to expand her services to families who suffered the long-term effects from the recent storms that have impacted the Northeast. Her work landed her on Time Magazine's 2012 list of the 100 most influential people in the world. Give an hour, creating a network of volunteer therapists who are helping soldiers and their families who suffer from the impact of their service, using that network to better train future clinicians to treat these disorders. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.